Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And this month, we're taking a break from interviews and releasing two teachings by Susan Hunt on the topic of biblical womanhood and Titus II ministry. Susan is the author of many books and the former director of women's ministries for the Presbyterian Church in America. She shared these at our church a year and a half ago, and I've talked to many who found them to be deeply biblical and full of practical wisdom. We hope that they freshly encourage you to live as a woman for God's glory. Enjoy. Helen Rosevere was a missionary doctor who went to Africa in 1953. She writes this in one of her books. Things had gone wrong at Nebo Bongo. I was very conscious that my life was not what it should have been. I was losing my temper with nurses, being impatient with the sick, getting irritated with workmen. I was overwhelmingly tired with an impossible workload and endless responsibilities. The day came when on a medical ward round in the hospital, I snapped at a woman patient. A small incident grew out of all proportion. Everyone listened in horrified amazement to the Christian missionary doctor as she lost her temper in fluent Swahili. And then she goes on to tell how an African pastor saw her need and arranged for her to go to his village for a long weekend. She says that she sought God's face for two very unhappy days. And then the following night, she was sitting outside by a fire with the pastor and his, hus- his wife, and they prayed. And she said, a great still silence wrapped around us. Opening his Bible at Galatians 2.20, he drew a straight line in the sand uh, with his heel. He said, I, the capital I in our lives, self is the great enemy, Helen. The trouble with you is we see so much Helen, we cannot see Jesus. My eyes filled with tears. He continued, I noticed that you drink much coffee. You seem to be going off on a tangent. When they bring a mug, you stand there holding it until it is cool enough to drink. May I suggest that every time as you stand and wait, you should just lift your heart to God and pray. And as he spoke, he moved his heel in the dirt across the eye he had previously drawn. Please, God, cross out the eye. There in the dirt, was his lesson of simplified theology, the cross, the crossed out I life. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Despite years of sound Bible teaching, the doctrine of biblical womanhood was never much the focus. I heard teaching for women regarding marriage, friendships, a gentle and quiet spirit, all great topics, but I either missed or was not taught the life-altering theology of why God made woman distinct from man. I found myself in my 40s and hearing for the first time a rich biblical perspective of womanhood. New terms such as a woman's helper design and life-giving calling started to settle into my thoughts. I'm all about the helper and life-giver at work. After all, I'm a physician and I have surrounded myself with a nurse, secretary, and nanny to help me to be a better helper and life giver to others. This subtly developed into a self-centered approach to life where all my helpers were in place to help me. As you can imagine, this set my marriage and family life off course. My focal point was off-center, 
and I became disappointed with unmet expectations from all these extenders, including my own husband at times. Thankfully, we are in a church with a women's ministry where I now receive clear teaching about God's creation design and redemptive calling for women. These truths are like water to a thirsty soul. There are women who model these truths to me and disciple me to apply them to my life. They have redirected me to a healthier balance in my marriage and other relationships by encouraging me to ask myself basic questions. Am I being a helper or a hinderer? Am I being a life giver or a life taker? Is God's glory my purpose rather than my own agenda and convenience? Life is still fast and full, but I'm excited to model and teach the truth of womanhood to my daughters. They're growing up in a crazy culture, and I want them to be grounded in a biblical perspective of womanhood. It really does matter. And I go back and read that periodically when I begin to wonder, does this really matter? Now, Titus 2 is the strategy that God gives us to give the legacy of biblical womanhood to the next generation. It was almost um, 30 years ago that my heart was first captivated by the Titus 2 concept. And in trying to understand it and to really see what it meant, that led to the writing of the book, Spiritual Mothering, which was actually published 25 years ago. But the interesting thing to me is that my passion for this concept has increased because the more I see it in the context of the whole that we talked about in last session, the more I see it in the context of the Great Commission, and the more I see it lived out in the lives of women and in churches, the more passionate I am about it. So let's dig in and move in closer to Titus 2, 3 to 5. In Matthew 28, we have uh, Christ's grand and glorious commission to his church that we're to go and that we're to make disciples. Titus 2 is the great commission made gender specific. Let's think just a minute about biblical discipleship. I, I like to use the words to help us get a handle on just what is this. That biblical discipleship is informational, it's relational, and it's transformational. I think it's really captured in Paul's description of his discipleship of the per people in Thessalonica. He wrote, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being an affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now here we see these three components. He shared the gospel, that's the information, and that's, that's necessary. But he also shared his own life. There's the relational. But isn't that what Jesus did? He called the disciples to be with him. And then this interesting phrase at the end when he tells why he did it. Because you had become very dear to us. You see, when, when you become so dear to me that I'm willing to sacrifice self to invest in you, that's transformational. That means transformation has occurred in my heart because my self-centered, selfish heart on my own strength I do not love other people enough to invest in them. So when we see ourselves wanting 
that there's, there's this desire welling up in us that we want to share the gospel and our lives with one another. That's God's transforming work in us. Now, this Titus mandate is remarkable. Titus was the pastor of a church on the island of Crete. And the letter that Paul wrote to him, together with the letters to uh, Timothy, First and Second Timothy, are known as the pastoral letters because they were written to tell these young pastors how to have healthy churches. And so of all the things that Paul could have told Titus to do to combat the decadence, the culture in Crete, which was strikingly similar to our culture today, one of the things Paul told him was to bear down on calling out and equipping older women to disciple younger women. Uh, Titus 2 is a chapter, really, on discipleship. So as we've moved a little bit closer to our passage, before we look really at verses 3 to 5, we want to look at the chapter itself and to see some principles of discipleship in uh, the, the chapter that help us to understand those verses more. You see, so often what I've seen people do over the years is to lift out Titus 2, 3 to 5, and then to match up older women and younger women and to say we've done Titus 2. But they really haven't because they haven't even discussed what Titus 2 is really all about. And we need to understand it at a very deep level. So let's now look at some principles of discipleship that inform how we see verses 3 to 5. In verse 1, Paul writes, but as for you, now who is you? It's Titus, the pastor, so it would be to the leaders of the church. This gives us the principle of ecclesiastical authority and responsibility. The mandate in verses 3 to 5 was actually not given to women. It was given to the leaders of the church. So what this says to us is this ministry is to take place within the context of church life, and then it reflects the creation order of male headship that we saw in Genesis. And then continuing in verse 1, our second principle, Paul says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound means healthy, so healthy doctrine that is proclaiming the full counsel of God. So a Titus 2 ministry between women is to take place within the context of sound doctrine. It's as if visualize it this way, we, we sit in church on Sunday and we hear God's word proclaimed from the pulpit. And then we as women are to take that sound doctrine and to help younger women to work it out into life so that they are living what they are affirming that they believe. That we're making the, uh, the sound doctrine applicable into life for women. I was struck at how important this was, this is. Years ago, right after the, um, the communists, the, the Russian bloc came apart and Ukraine became an independent country and a lot of missionaries were going into the various countries that were formerly in the Soviet bloc. And so I was on a, a mission team that went after the missionaries had been there for a couple of years. And I went in with a team of women to teach biblical womanhood. 
And as we went through and as we came to the part about submission, afterwards, these women were just weeping. And what they said to me was, we've received Christ. We've received the teaching from the men, the male missionaries who are here. They taught us about male headship, but we could not hear it until we heard it from the mouth of a woman. They said, in our minds, what that said to us was weakness, and we had been living under a system that we rebelled against the very idea of submission. But now we see that it does not mean weakness. You are strong women. You're strong in Christ, and yet you have embraced God's creation order. And that just struck me. They had to hear it from the mouth of a woman. Same thing their pastors had been telling them. And Paul knew this. There's some things that we need to say woman to woman. And then we come in verses 2 to 10, and we see here's the sound doctrine proclaimed from the pulpit. Now it's to be worked out in church life. Here we see the communion of the saints or covenant community life as instructions are given to older men and younger men and older women and younger women and even to slaves, which in our context would be employers and employees. This is the covenant community life that is characterized not by independence, I'm not my brother's keeper or my sister's keeper, but by interdependence, that yes, I am my sister's keeper and thus I am to invest in her by this, this vibrant life with a shared authority of God's word and a shared purpose of his glory. Harken back to Genesis. It's what Jesus prayed for and what he provided for. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes the communion of saints in this way. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his grace, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And there is not a period there. Much of Christendom would put a period there because we hold so tightly to individualism. But there's not a period there. What the statement goes on to say, which is what Scripture says, is if we're united to Christ, we're united to one another. We're family. So, being united to one another in love, we have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged. That is a strong word in today's culture. We are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as conduce to the mutual good in the inward and outward man. So, the women's ministry leader says... Our question is, will this give life to the church as a whole or take life? Because we're concerned about the mutual good, not just the women, not just the women's ministry. You see, it's that mutual good because we are living in interdependence and we want our unity to proclaim to the world that God sent Jesus and that he loves us. There's no way we can do this in our own strength. Our unity with one another 
flows out of our union with Christ and his provision of his spirit in us. Then verses 3 to 5, the gender-specific discipleship. Older women are to be reverent, not slanderous or slaves to much wine, to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In essence, what this is saying is that godly, mature women are to train younger women, younger in faith, younger in life, to be life givers, to fulfill our helper design and our redemptive calling to be life givers. These are some examples of behaviors and of virtues, but it's not an exhaustive uh, list. This is just some ideas of what that means. And again, it's very similar to what Paul said in Thessalonians about sharing our life and the gospel because the word train is a word that means to demonstrate and to show. So we're to share the gospel, but we're to show what it looks like as we live it out. Now, does that mean that the older woman has to be perfect? Absolutely not. She shares her struggles. She shares her gifts and her graces even as that's ongoing, as she shares her struggles with being kind in the workplace, her struggles with being supportive of her husband. She shares her prayer journey as she has learned to yield this to the Lord and to trust him. So one definition of spiritual mothering is when a woman possessing faith and spiritual maturity enters into a nurturing relationship with a younger woman in order to encourage and equip her to live for God's glory. Now, this is not just for married women. It's for single women. It's for women of all age. In fact, some of the most effective spiritual mothers I have ever known have been single women who had never married. One was... Uh, I watched her from the time she was in her 60s until she went home to be with the Lord in her 80s. An, an amazing spiritual mother. Are also women who have never had children. And what those women have said to me is that when they heard this, when they realized that they could be spiritual mothers, it unleashed something in them that they had locked down and that just brought such life to them. And their effectiveness in this has just been amazing. So it is not just for married women, but it is for all women. Think again about Paul saying that he was gentle like a nursing mother. The, the use of mothering imagery for discipleship is striking to me. There's another verse where Jesus said in Matthew 23... O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Here Jesus uses mothering imagery to talk about he would have gathered them under his wings like a mother hen gathers her brood. Women, be gatherers. Gather women to yourself. 
Open up yourself to them and gather them to yourselves. I can't wait to see, I hope I get to see the end of the story of my young friend in the office place. She's being transformed. She's seeing women in a different way. I suspect that before long, she will be gathering them. They will be responding to her. It takes time, sometimes a lot of time, and it doesn't always happen. But whether it happens or not, we're to be gatherers. We don't want women to be afraid of us, but we want to be gatherers. Now, this is a very costly investment that we're talking about. Why would we do such a thing? The passage tells us, verse 11 in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then in verse 13, We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason we do this is because Jesus appeared in grace, and he will appear in glory. And between these two appearings, these two epiphanies, we're told to make disciples. If you're not got, uh, motivated by the gospel itself, you will fizzle along the way. You will not go the distance. It is only when we're motivated by the gospel. And believe me, I'm struggling with that going the distance because I'm tired. I'm old. But when I remind myself that Jesus gathered me as part of his brood under the protection of his wings, I have to look out and gather others that they'll know the protection of his wings. But not only is the gospel our motivation, the gospel is the power for such an investment. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is redeeming. Jesus is purifying his people. He is redeeming the hurts and the pains and everything we go through. He is purifying us to be transformed more and more into his likeness. So when we enter into this, we cannot guarantee if you invest in a woman, you will see transformation in her life. But I can tell you this, when we invest in others, because we're motivated by the gospel, not by any kind of self-fulfillment, we will see ourselves being redeemed. We will see ourselves being purified. We will see ourselves being ready, made ready to meet our bridegroom. Now, what does this look like in an example in Scripture? You may want to turn to Luke 1. The Titus idea is given weight at the high point of human history when a young woman is told that she will be the mother of the Messiah. You know that familiar passage in Luke 1. When the, the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she will be the mother of the Messiah, first he says to her, Greetings, O favored one. Now this is significant because 
What he is saying to Mary is that she is the recipient of God's grace. The word for favored is graced. So Mary is not the dispenser of grace. She is the recipient of grace. And then he goes on to tell her that she will conceive in her womb and bear a child, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And then as he completes this announcement, the angel makes what seems to be a random statement that does not fit with the rest of what he said. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary gives her response in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Do you see what Mary is saying? I am the servant of the Lord. She is declaring that her purpose is God's glory. I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. She is declaring that her authority is God's word. So we see those first two principles that we saw in Genesis 1. You see, this announcement did not come to this young woman in a vacuum. She is a covenant daughter who knew God's word. The fact that God's glory is her purpose and his word is her authority was a settled issue. And if you are the mother of children, drive those two truths into their hearts and minds. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What rule has God given us to know how to glorify him? God's word is our only rule to know how to glorify him. Our kids need to know that so that when it comes, as a young friend of mine who was just diagnosed with breast cancer said, my theology works. My purpose is God's glory. And they've got to have that in their heads so that it can be activated in those moments. And that's what Mary did at this amazing moment. Her theology kicked in. God's glory is my purpose. His word is my authority. But then Mary remembers the, the words about Elizabeth. You see, that was not a random statement. Because not only was Mary thinking biblically, but she needed to live covenantally. Even though she was called to be the mother of the Messiah, she needed an older woman in her life. And God had prepared an older woman, and it even reminded her of that older woman. And so Mary, in obedience, in verse 39 arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. Younger women, go to older women. Go to them and let them speak into your life. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Older women, and, and let me just say, every one of us in here is both. Even me, I'm 77, but I'm still a younger woman. Sometimes the older women speaking to my life are younger than me, 
biologically, but at that moment, they have so much more spiritual strength than I do, and they speak into my life. So we're all both. We need to be looking ahead to find women to run to, and we need to be looking behind to find women together under our wings. And here's the qualification. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be beholding the glory of Jesus in his word so that we reflect him to those we gather to ourselves. And she exclaimed with a loud voice. Not only did she welcome Mary, did she gather Mary into her home, but she spoke. Here's the information part of discipleship. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. These are life-giving words. They're words of affirmation. Blessed are you for trusting Jesus. They're words of instruction, of encouragement. This is what a spiritual mother does. They're words of blessing. And what happens? In verse 46, Mary sings her beautiful magnificat that has blessed the church of Jesus down through the ages. You see, when women are speaking into the lives of younger women, I think we will see them come out of the shadows and burst into lives of praise that are life-giving lives that bring praise to the Savior. One commentator said that it's striking that Mary did not sing when the angel spoke to her. She did not sing until she was welcomed into the home of an older woman. That's powerful. It really is. Now, what does Mary sing? We don't have time to look at the entire song, but I want to point out two or three things. She begins, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This song of Mary echoes the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 which shows us that Mary knew the Old Testament. This song, all of it, it is reflections upon teachings in the Old Testament. It's fascinating to go and see all of that. But here she begins just as Hannah did, praising, not, praising God not just for the gift, but for the giver. And then in verse 48 she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's very interesting. Because back in verse 25, when Elizabeth, who was old and barren, became pregnant, this is what she said. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You see, for God to turn his face to us, that is the blessing that God told Aaron, Elizabeth's ancestor, to put upon the people. That God 
turns his face toward us. He shines the light of his countenance upon us. And our testimony is the same as Elizabeth's. It's when God turns to us that our reproach is taken away. And so Elizabeth had said at the point she found herself that God had done the impossible for her. He looked on me. Well, I feel sure she had repeated that testimony to Mary probably many times. Now, Mary repeats the language of her spiritual mother when she says, he has looked on me. That's what happens. When we speak truth into the lives of younger women, when we speak life-giving words, they begin to speak our language. And it's wonderful because it's God's language. And that's what we begin to hear. And then, skipping down to the end, in verse 54, Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Do you see what she's doing there? She's using the language of God as our helper, which makes me think Mary understood to some extent her helper design. And she's living it out, even as a teenager. And then she concludes, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary speaks of God's covenant faithfulness. She reaches back to the Old Testament, to the covenant with Abraham, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And now she is remembering that Mary understands the scope of the whole. She has some sense of the big picture and thus, thus of her part in this gospel story. And that's what explains why this young teenager could have such clarity of purpose, could be so, so strong and succinct in her declarations of faith and of faithfulness, which tells me she's been discipled well. She has been discipled well. Now, the narrative continues, and Mary has another encounter with an older woman. After the birth of Jesus, we read that in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph take the child to the temple to present him to the Lord. Now, Simeon had been told that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And so he sees Mary and Joseph come in. He knows that this is the promised one. He goes and he takes the child Jesus in his arms. He thanks God for this child. He blesses Mary and Joseph. And then in verse 34 of Luke 2, Simeon blessed them and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and that, and, and that a sign is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, he says this to Mary, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now Mary has heard such talk of this child inheriting the throne of David, but now she has Simeon saying to her, blessed is this child, but just know 
that the cost of your calling is that a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary knew the Old Testament, and we have to wonder if Psalm 22:16 comes to mind, where the psalmist wrote, "They have pierced my hands and my feet." Now, what causes a sword in the soul? Because it's not just that a sword will go into the body of Jesus, but a sword will pierce Mary's soul. I can think of at least three things. Our own sin, women who have an affair or an abortion or some decision in their past, and they're dealing with that. Or perhaps it's a sword that's caused by the sin of another against us, a betrayal, abuse, whatever. Or perhaps it is the sword of our providential calling um, cancer, the death of a child. Those are swords in our soul. But what's interesting is that after she's confronted with this reality of the cost of her calling, in verse 36 we read, there was a prophetess, Anna. Anna was 84 years old. She had been married for seven years and then had been a widow up until this time, and she's now 84. I get such encouragement from reading that. She was 84 and still going strong. We read that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see here Mary is probably beginning to be weak-kneed over a sword piercing her soul. What did that mean when immediately God provides an older woman whose situation as a widow would mean that she was among the most vulnerable in that culture. And yet this woman comes with a thankful heart and says, blessed be God who has sent us redemption. She begins to give thanks to God and to speak about all who are waiting for redemption. So she's speaking about redemption. You can sort of hear her saying, Mary, don't look at the sword. Mary, think of the sword redemptively. God will use that sword in your soul to bring about his great plan of redemption, to tell his gospel story. Mary, look ahead. See the redemption of Israel. Mary, look up. See your Redeemer. Do not just focus on the sword. You see, that old woman put the sword in the context of the greater story, the scope of the whole, of redemption. So then, that piece of Mary's story, the sword, makes sense. Whereas if you just look at the sword, we will not get it right because we'll become absorbed by the sword 
rather than by the gospel. Now, don't miss the fact. God provided a spiritual mother for Mary at a time of rejoicing and at a time of weeping. Shouldn't the church do the same? A woman told me that she asked, went to a woman in her church and said, would you spiritually mother me? And the woman very quickly agreed. She said, yes, I would love to do that. And then when the young woman was telling me about this, she said, it has been six months and I have not heard anything from her since. And I'm crushed. And I thought about that. And I said, you know, she readily agreed to do this. And so I have to think she really wants to. And I suspect she is more crushed than you are. Because I suspect that every day she wakes up and she thinks, what am I supposed to do? How do I spiritually mother her? How do I disciple somebody? I don't know how to do this. And every day she feels more guilty and she is more burdened. It shouldn't be that way. You see, Titus, the mandate in Titus, Paul calls the church to equip and to mobilize women for this calling of spiritually mothering younger women. Whether it's informal or formal ministry, whether it's organized or spontaneous individual, whether it's an occasional conversation or a regular meeting, older women, be available, which really means I'm speaking to all of you when I say that, because they're teen girls in this church. They're college girls. They're little girls who need spiritual mothers. And they're women who need to be spiritual mothers. So what can you do? Instead of just going to someone and saying, will you disciple me? Perhaps go to her and say, could we read this book together? And would you talk to me about it? Would you help me apply it into my life? And then I've given you some what we call Titus II discipleship questions. I've given those to you on the bottom of the handout. Over the years, as we've worked on this and sort of brought it down to this, we found that it's very helpful whether you're reading a book together with someone else and studying in that way, or if you're just, um, as you're talking and listening to someone, if you have these questions, and I even encourage you to give them to any women that you may be spiritually mothering, or to a teenage daughter or granddaughter or spiritual daughter, and say, I want you to think about these, and when we talk about things, these are the questions I'm going to used to guide our conversation. What will it mean to glorify God in this situation or relationship? So in essence, when my daughter said to her daughters, I'm not going to let you call your daddy right now, if she was having that conversation today, now that they're older, she would say, okay, girls, let's, let's stop and think. What would it mean for you to glorify God right now when you're upset that your daddy's not home and is going to miss whatever? What would it mean to glorify God in this situation? What will it mean to bring this situation or relationship under, under the authority of God's word rather than my feelings? Are there any ways that I'm being a life taker in this situation and relationship? What will it mean 
to be a life giver in this situation or relationship? How can my sisters help me and how can I help them to be life givers? You see, we're not to live independently. We need to go to each other and to say, I'm struggling here. Hold me accountable. I want you to help me to be a life giver. I love when young women come with that attitude. My husband just walked out. Help me to be a life giver in this situation. Whatever it is, I think you'll find these questions will be helpful. I love you, and I look forward to hearing stories. I've already heard so many. As Some of you have just come up and told me things you are doing, uh, relationships that you have, and I know that God will continue to work that grace in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have redeemed us and called us to such a beautiful calling. And Father, I pray for every one of us in here that we will live boldly, boldly biblical, that we will live beautifully so that we reflect the goodness of our Savior. Lord, we cannot do this. We're not just weak physically, but we're so weak spiritually. But you are mighty. You are so powerful. And I thank you that you will do immeasurably more than we can ask or even think about. And may it all be for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom in our part of the world where you have placed us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, and at this time in your redemptive history. Thank you for our moment. In Jesus' name, amen.